Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, your favorite church unity podcast, probably. If you want to hear from pastors, professors, and everything in between, right, sure. And, you know, the occasional train talk. Right, right, yeah. Uh, have we got the podcast for you? All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening today. This is the Whole Church Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Knoll, and this is Tiberius Hall. Yeah, just TJ. TJ Blackwell. Right, and uh, today we're going to be talking with Dr. Nathan Finn, who's in the room. Yeah, his but, uh, office. Yeah, it's a nice office. It's a good corner office. Um, first, you want to tell them about where they can find us? Uh, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud. They probably already found that. You're all. probably listening to it right now. Yeah. But uh, um, Facebook find us and on Instagram. Facebook and Instagram, of course. Email us at thewholechurch at gmail dot com so mm-hmm. we can read any comments you guys have. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Yeah, we do. We travel today. a lot, and we need equipment and software and stuff. And uh, any supports. Not only welcome, but really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, uh, we want to start some train talk, right? Sure. Yeah, so, really, we want to hear you guys' opinions on this. So, you, you have the article. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the time frame this happened. It, it was, was old. 19... You can please talk about this. But in 1896, 1895 was the first time. But uh, apparently, organizations would set up train wrecks for people to watch. Like stage. Yeah. They would lay track specifically for two trains to run into each other on. And then people would pay to watch that. Apparently it was a huge pastime. Yeah, it happened from uh, 1895 to 1930-something. See, the thing that's most interesting to me about it... The first time it happened, two people died. God. And they kept doing it for 40 years. <laughs> See, though, the thing that fascinates me the most is that that means two conductors willingly got in a train, started it towards each other, got it fast enough for this to happen, and then jumped out. Yeah, they had to jump out. So, I mean, is what you're describing really that different than the 2016 election? I no. mean, nobody died <laughs> in the 2016 election no that, we, yes. that we've proven. But, I mean, I'm two trains running into each other, train wreck, and yet less. people still find it entertaining. That it sounds, sounds like to me totally like 2016. So. Ah, I'm convinced we're going to have a repeat. Maybe we'll have those two people this time. Never know. But uh, my question for the audience I'd love to know is uh, how many of y'all would be willing if you got paid like a thousand dollars to yeah. be that conductor? Oh, or also, yeah, how yeah, many of you would to want it? to pay to watch two trains? Right? Like if Amtrak like, sent would you, you an be email willing for that and said, "Hey, we've got this opportunity. You can come watch two Amtrak trains run into each other at full speed. Would you pay for it?" Yeah, we want to know you guys listening, y'all's thoughts on that. So, uh, email us or comment on Facebook. We'll probably have a poll out after the podcast drops. Drops, releases. How should I say that? Both. Yeah, drops and releases, depending on how old All you right, are. All right, so we wanted to get to our icebreaker question. Well, should we introduce him first? I, mean, I guess we can. Yeah, so this is Dr. Nathan Finn. He is the faculty dean. Provost and dean of the faculty. That's a lot of words. It is. Man. So he is in charge of the deans, in charge of the teachers. In charge of everyone. Yeah. That isn't. He's the big man on campus. Or second big man. I, I, I am the chief academic officer, so I'm responsible for all of our academic programs. Hmm. So you see, officer, can you academically arrest someone? Can you decide someone's on academic probation? Is that up to you? Is that come to you? You know, you guys have given me an idea that I'm just going to run with from now on. I'm going to walk right. around making <laughs> citizens' arrests every time a faculty member or a student gets on my nerves. I'm going to have to. Apologize they just do something dumb on campus. Uh, you could just be like, "Nope, guys, this is this is fantastic." 
Thank you so much. Well, for academically arrested. Yeah. Uh, for that idea, can uh, I get like half off on tuition? Could you, or let's just trademark it. Yeah, just when you arrest them, be like, oh, by the way, this arrest is trademarked by the whole church podcast. There you go. Yeah. But now that All we've right. introduced Dr. Nathan Finn. Oh, is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself first? Uh, no. All right. Uh, he is a Jedi. We did need to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a whole different thing. All right. Special question for this podcast. What is your least favorite book that you've read? Yeah, we, we can start if you want to think about it. My least your favorite, least favorite book? book that you've read. Goodness, I've read so many bad books, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah, with I that. walked in and I was like, "Man, this is going to be a good question for him." Yeah, it yeah. Seems like I mean, he has maybe, a lot of books. maybe, maybe the better thing to do is to just stare at a particular shelf and say, that "What's the worst book on that shelf?" Yeah, and, do, do uh, that. Shelf D eight. Uh, what's your uh, least favorite shelf, book on that? Shelf D eight. Uh, D six. He has a massive office. Yeah, and an entire wall of it is just books for those listening. <laughs> Yeah, Joshua, uh, you could go first since you know your answer. Oh yeah, um, it's across five Aprils. I hate that book. I don't remember a lot about it. I remember that uh, I was in high school when I read it. I had to read it, read it ten times because when I googled it, there wasn't really that many reviews on it. Like not many people read it apparently at that point. And I had to read it ten times just to remember it because it was so boring to me. And after reading it ten times and writing that paper on it, I still could not tell you a single thing about it. Other than it was across five Aprils, because that was why it was named that. It was five years, and it happened in April. And it was really, really boring. Yeah, my personal least favorite was uh, the first Twilight book, because my sisters forced me to read it. I didn't enjoy a single word of it. I thought it was all incredibly boring. Just vampire drivel. Awful. Um, and while he's mentioning Twilight, I just want to go ahead and challenge everybody. I maintain that Hunger Games is a worse movie than Twilight. At me if you want to talk about it. So, Dr. I, I don't even know how to respond to this. We're talking about Twilight. Uh, yeah, yeah so, Twilight. you know, I'm looking at my shelf filled with books <laughs> about uh, the doctrine of the Bible. And the book I, I want to name is not up there because I got rid of it. It was so bad. And it's something for me to get rid of a book. Uh, it, it was called something something like The New Bible Conspiracy. And it was by this person writing under a pseudonym who was convinced that Satan himself had inspired all English translations except for the King James Bible. Wow. And it was filled with conspiracy theories about how, like, the translators of the NIV were all, uh, you know, secretly devil worshippers, and the translators of the such and such (laughs) were all uh, secretly this, and, you know, that Bible scholar was an alcoholic, and that Bible scholar was a homosexual. (laughs) And so, like, you add together all the conspiracies and innuendos, and that would explain where all these modern Bible translations came from. Hold up, though. King James is okay. Didn't Shakespeare help write King James? And isn't he gay? Well, Shakespeare didn't help write the King James Bible, but uh, but there is there 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 are uh, yeah, that's a longer conversation than what yeah, we're having right definitely now. Definitely, so, he had some yeah. kind of input on it. Yeah. Anyway, so man, I'm not going to chase this. But last last podcast, Mormons only use the King James because they think it's the most accurate. What do you think is the best Bible version? Well, it depends English on, version of the Bible. I well, it depends say. on how you define best. It's a loaded question, right? Uh, what do you think is the most accurate translation? The most accurate translation. If you are looking for a literal word-for-word translation, 
the best one is probably the New American Standard Bible, but it also Bam. reads really wooden and choppy in some places yeah. because it's so literal. Yep. If you're talking about something that is uh, literal for the most part, but also readable, then uh, then I really like the English Standard Version or the Christian Standard. And that's version. what I use. That's uh, that's what I've been saying on the podcast. I still want someone to challenge it just for fun. Wow. You know, I know um, Doctor Link. He's a big fan of King James Version. <laughs> For the heat, like the Old Testament stuff. Okay. All right. So, you're really into church history. Is that is that an accurate? Yeah, that, that's accurate, right? That, that's an accurate. <laughs> yeah. statement. Everything we've read online about what you've done involves church history, right? Why? Well, for me, it was really the coming together of two different passions. So, I've always loved history. So, if you go all the way back to elementary school when it was social studies, kind of a combination of history and geography. That was my favorite subject. I won awards in that. I always scored the highest on that when it came to standardized tests that every student had to take, all the students had to take. So I've always loved history. Even going into high school, my favorite classes were history classes. Well, around the same time I was finishing high school, the Lord also called me to the ministry of the gospel. And so in many ways, the love of history in general and the love for the Lord and his people and advancing the gospel came together in a love for the history of Christianity. So there are some people who are uh, historians who happen to study Christianity, and there are other people who are pastors who happen to like history. And as a church historian, I'm really kind of somewhere in between those things. I do love history in general, and I love the church, but I'm very excited to learn about the history of Christianity and to specifically think about what that can teach us about uh, faithfulness in our present context. Hmm. So it's just naturally interesting to you. Yeah, absolutely. What's not to be interested in? Come on, guys. It's like, how are we supposed to know what to do now if we don't know what has already been done? Absolutely. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's a beautiful thing. We don't have to make the same mistakes that everybody's made in front of us. We don't have to start with a blank slate and say, what is orthodoxy? What is faithfulness? We learn from the past, good, bad, and ugly. We stand on the shoulders of giants who came before us. It's a good tool. Did you like that? Yeah. I love Lord of the Rings. I actually, um, part of my favorite C.S. Lewis quote that I probably am going to misquote because I usually quote it very poorly, which bad, because it is my favorite quote, but it's more the meaning behind it is my favorite, if that makes sense. Where he's talking about, he says, uh, gratitude is in the past, love is in the present, but fear, avarice, lust, and ambition is the part I mess up. It's like lying in the future, lies ahead, something like that. Yeah. But it's, um, he talks about how we can be thankful for the past, but that, that's all we get from it. So we're thankful for it so that we can use it in the present. Yeah. And if you're living in the past, if you're living in the future, that's where things kind of get a little gray. You live in the present, thankful for the past that you can use it. So C.S. Lewis has this delightful sermon that he preached in an Oxford chapel during World War II uh, that was turned into an essay afterwards. It's called Learning in Wartime because there were all these people who said, listen, there's a world war going on. Uh, ultimate matters are happening. Why in the world are you guys here in college? And Lewis says, you know, we're here in college because we're learning about the past. The person who doesn't know the past is like a guy from a little town who's never met anybody else. He may be really sincere, but he's so limited in what he knows. 
historians and other scholars have the opportunity to learn beyond the confines of uh, their region and their context. It's a compelling vision. we got someone else talking about C.S. Lewis on the podcast. This might be my new favorite episode. So, what can we learn from previous church splits? Like uh, the Orthodox Church and the... Yeah, where, uh, when the Protestants yeah. split from Catholicism, mm-hmm. or when everything separately split from Catholicism in different periods throughout time. What do we learn from those past splits, like what you're talking about, that we can use in that? I think that we can learn several lessons. I think one lesson that we can learn is that all splits are not created equal. And so if you look at these various splits, sometimes they're splitting over issues that are really, really important. Big questions like, what is the church? What does it mean to be saved? Right? These are big, important questions, and and they're worth having important conversations about. And if you can't agree on those sorts of questions, then it's going to be hard to live together under the same house, figuratively speaking. There are other splits. There are over issues that are of, of much less importance. And so some of the debates about, uh, for example, uh, should we have bishops or elders or pastors? Some of the debates about who should we baptize? Some of the debates about uh, the finer points of predestination. Uh, all of those are important questions, and, and they're questions that arise out of the Bible and out of the best of Christian theology. Uh, but some of those questions, you might be able to live in the same house, if you will, and, and have honest debates about them. Others, maybe not so much, but I think everybody would agree they're not on the same level as fundamental disagreements about who is God. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean to be saved? And, and what is the church by definition? Uh, and so I think one of the lessons we learn from church history is that whenever we have disagreements amongst ourselves, we, we need to be really careful to say, you know, where where is this? Is this really worth separating over? Is it worth living in the same house, but maybe having ongoing family conversations about? Or is it really just a matter of, you know, we're probably never going to agree on that, and so uh, let's just let bygones be bygones. And so it really comes down to you know, how important those doctrines are. Uh, we were talking beforehand about the tiers of doctrines. You know, is it mm-hmm. is this something worth splitting over? And in a fallen world, sometimes probably yes, often probably not. And figuring that out as art is as much as it is science, and, and history can help us do that. I think something else that we can learn uh, from church historical splits is the dangers of personalities. And so uh, some of these church splits happen because of loyalties to particular personalities or loyalties uh, to particular offices or, or the idea of a position, whether that's the papacy or whether that's an individual where their last name has isms attached to it. And they're looking at one person or a small group of people and kind of following after them. And, you know, we, we need to be very, very careful that we don't get caught up in uh, hero worship or in following personalities more than we follow Christ. And we see that happen even today. Mm-hmm. And if, if we think about local churches, the vast majority of the church splits I've seen have been over personalities. One group likes that pastor. The other group doesn't like that pastor. 
And there may be some legitimate differences about how to do things and doctrine and stuff like that, but a lot of it comes down to I like him or I don't like him. Been at a church that split for that exact Yeah, right, right. So I think church history teaches us that. But then if I can put a bit of a positive spin on it, um, I think it teaches us that historically Christians have really cared about biblical truth. Hmm. I mean, at our best, we're not arguing over, uh, you know, whether something is uh, true or untrue. We're agreeing that a concept is biblical. We're agreeing that it's there, and we're debating over the best way to understand it. So when it comes to something like predestination, when it comes to something like baptism, when it comes to something like church leadership, when it comes to something like spiritual gifts, all Christians everywhere in theory agree that all of those are biblical ideas, that the Bible has a lot to say about them. And so the reason the splits are happening is because people really care about truth. And they're really trying to arrive at the truth about those issues. And the fact that there are differences of opinion is, again, evidence that we we live in a fallen world. We see through a glass darkly. We should be humble, even as we also have convictions that we hold tightly about all those things. But, I mean, in a very real sense, division happens because truth matters. When you don't care about truth, almost anything goes and you can have superficial unity. The solution to a divided church is not a superficial unity where everything goes under the banner of this ethereal thing we call Jesus or Christianity, right? It, it, it has to be a truth and love-driven unity. And I think church history reminds us especially of that truth part of it. That it these, these ideas matter. Someone's right and someone's wrong. So that needs to be the way that we talk about these things, even as we... Uh, humbly make the best case we can for our personal convictions about Scripture. Yeah, so is it, it's sometimes necessary for a church to split if they're having those issues, is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think we have to decide, is it is it worth or not? If a church, let's say, theoretically, I'm a member of a church and the pastor is a heretic, and I don't throw that word around loosely, like I disagree with him on something. Like, let's say he is an actual, he is preaching a false gospel. And 60% of the church is saying, you've persuaded us this is true. I'm leaving that church. And I'm encouraging other people to leave that church. And I don't think I'm violating John 17 whenever I do that, because Jesus talks about truth and unity whenever he's praying that the church would be one. Right, yeah. That's not really a church. It's a building that calls itself a church. It's a group of people that calls itself a church. He's not really a pastor. Maybe he was at one time, but he's not really anymore. So again, but if the pastor has a different opinion than me about any host of other things, I might just think to myself, yeah, I think he's probably wrong about that. But he's right about most stuff and all the important stuff. So this is not worth raising any sort of ruckus about. And I do think the vast majority of our differences are in that latter category. But sometimes the honorable thing to do is say, we can't walk together anymore because I'm not sure we're meaning the same thing when we talk about the most important stuff. See, that's... I'm trying to figure out where I'm going with this. It reminds me of like a lot of my own experience. I know um, when I'm in Charlotte, 
a ton of churches. It's almost yeah. like competitive. Like, oh, you're a Baptist, huh? You know, right. I go to this church, got a prophecy, and this is what I believe. And uh, how come right, you guys right, can't right. get on? You know, it's all, it's almost competitive. Sure. But then when I went to Wilmington, I was at UNCW. It's almost like the scarcity of believers yeah. caused a different kind of thing. Sure. Like we went to I went to a non-denominational church, it was Crossway, and it was basically just Reformed baptism. And it was so fascinating because our group, the college group who went, it was me, a couple Catholics, a Presbyterian. Right. And, you know, it was just a whole different group. And it was almost like, you know, we believed different things, but it was like they'd pick on each other. You know, like I got right. regularly like, oh, man, that, <laughs> that worship was good. You about to you about to start speaking in tongues now? Oh, you know, like they really, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah like we pick on the Catholic. And it's, it's almost like you tease each other, but it wasn't like it was like the unity was stronger because of the scarcity. Sure. And is, is that a large part of it? Is it just because we can just go down the road yeah. and pick something different? No, no, no. That can definitely happen. And so if you look in the South, like, I mean, we're in Greenville County right now. Yeah. There are 205 Southern Baptist churches in Greenville County. That is oh, not God. counting other Baptists or other evangelicals or other non-evangelicals. That's just one tradition. Is there rivalry between denominational traditions? Ho, oh, ho. Not only that, there's rivalry between churches in the same tradition. But go to a town in New England or a town in the Pacific Northwest where there may be only one church in that town that's preaching the gospel. Chances are you're not going to find people that are splitting hairs over legitimately debatable secondary issues. But they've learned to kind of live together and kind of suck it up on some of those things because it's either worship with a guy who disagrees with me about fill in the blank and worship with a girl who disagrees with me about Philip in the blank, fill in the blank or go to another place where they are not preaching the gospel. Amen. So with that in mind, is it possible that having so many different churches and such a big variety in small towns is causing some competition and discord? Discord might not be the right word. So, so in the South, yeah. most communities, if we're, if we're talking about, now I, I think there's an exception here if we're talking about immigrant populations yeah, and, and folks who are uh, not from the South but have moved into urban centers like Charlotte. Yeah. There's a lot of folks in Metro Charlotte from Vietnam. That's not who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, for lack of a better phrase, white folks and black folks who live in the South who've been there for multiple generations. Who would call themselves folk. Who'd call them and, and who would be, and who would be Southerners of various types. The South in general, among the two largest ethnic groups, is overchurched but underreached. Hmm. There are churches on every corner. Yep. But there's still so many unbelievers and so many lost people. A bunch of them think they're Christians because grandma's buried in the cemetery or because at some point they walked an aisle and repeated after me or they made some commitment at church camp or whatever, but they have not walked with Christ in many, many years and maybe even weren't walking with Christ to begin with. But there's still a church on every corner. And they may all even be, I'm using quote marks for those of you who are listening, <laughs> Bible-believing conservative churches, and they're on every corner competing mm-hmm. about different things. So yeah, we're over-churched but under-reached. And this county we're in right now is exhibit A of that. The, uh, the town that I grew up in, uh, went to high school in Inman, Yeah, uh, has a population of a little over 2,000 now. There are nine churches downtown, yeah. not including the only Ukrainian church. Right. There's a ton of Ukrainians wow. in Inman. Okay. For no real reason. How interesting. Like, See, that's, yeah, it really is. I went to school with so many. 
Okay. They're just there for no reason. But there are nine churches within five minutes of each other. Well, yeah, and it, Most it exemplifies what go to one. we're talking about. How we mentioned this every podcast earlier, but it exemplifies what Doctor Beck and Doctor Link were talking about, like that whole um, how's it? He, he he phrased it. They were not. No, it wasn't idol worshiping. It was tribalism. Tribalism. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And he's, it exemplifies that. It's it's. I'm Baptist because my mom and grandma yeah. and great grandma were all Baptists. And right. Could you tell me anything about it? No. Do you even know what Jesus is to you? Probably not. Right. And it's like, but they're still at the same time. If you tell them you're Pentecostal, like, oh, well, we don't believe like that. What do you mean like that? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And over church, underreached. Lots of, lots of folks have Good tribal one. identity. No so, question. What can we do about it? Well, there are several things we can do about it. One of them, well, I won't begin with the counterintuitive one. Let's just go with the obvious. Uh, we, we need to be very faithful in sharing the gospel and not just settling for somebody who says, yes, I'm a Christian with letting that go, especially in the South. Everybody, all the lost people think they're Christians, right? So, I mean, we've got to actually do the hard work of getting to know people and as best we can discern where they are spiritually. So we need to be more intentional with our evangelism. You, now, people. you mean like we have to have relationships? Yeah. Uh, so like there's that. a Sunday school answer, right? We need to be more evangelistic. Now let me say something counterintuitive because I just were over for we're underreached. Um, we need to plant some new churches. And we need to plant churches yeah. in neighborhoods that are underreached, even if there's a church nearby. We need to plant uh, churches, especially among minority and immigrant populations, uh, who like the Ukrainians you might be mentioning. It's mm-hmm. great that there's a Ukrainian church in Inman. Many of them might not be in church if there wasn't a church that was dedicated primarily to reaching them. Not just them, but really dedicated to reaching them. So we do need to plant more churches. And then we need, and now that, so there was, I began with the obvious and I went to the counterintuitive. Yeah, uh, Let me go to the controversial. We need a bunch of churches to shut down or merge with each other. Yes. Praise God. So we really do. And uh, we, we need to... Now, we have to be careful with this because if two unhealthy churches merge together, then you're going to have a unhealthy merger, right? So it's not just about merging, but we do need some churches who say, you know what, we've had a good run and the Lord's blessed us, mm-hmm. but we're down to 17 folks and, and somebody else could use this building. Or we need folks who say, you know what, we have... Two basically like-minded churches that uh, that we're you know seven miles apart, and when we started 150 years ago, that seven miles was a really big deal. Now that seven miles is like throwing a football across the field. We could merge together and do the same thing, and that's going to start first with churches that are part of the same tradition. But over time, it might even happen with churches that are not already in the same tradition, but they're close enough to each other that they can navigate some of those differences or or one church could become a part of the other tradition mm-hmm. and, and just be a little bit different. Yeah. So I think we need a lot of churches to, to shut down and merge with each other. We've got to have the pastors kind of like set aside their own ego and their you know congregation that they have grown and allow another church to take over. That, so that's true with some churches, but I'm going to push back a little bit from at least a Baptist experience. It's often not the pastors, it's the people. Because the pastors come and go. And it's, you know, man, I, I grew up in this church, and my mother grew up in this church, and my grandma grew up in this church, and I know that we're down to 31 cranky people, but this is our church, dang it, and we're different from those people down the road, even though they're really not. And so, That's exactly you know, what do you, what do you do to 
bring them together. So we need all those things to happen. Man, see, now I'm imagining, I, I like taking things too far. So now I'm imagining like a kind of merger of, and I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but I, I think it would be cool to see where one building is serving, maybe even, you know, we're together. Uh, maybe we even have different services with the different people. Like uh, maybe we could have a Baptist service and then a Pentecostal service. You know, it's mm-hmm. why why split each other? Yeah, you see that happen that sometimes. You see yeah, it happen cool. more often in cities than other places. Yeah. I haven't seen it. That'd be cool. No, it's it's not a it's not an uncommon thing. Again, especially in a metro area. For let's just say it is a Baptist church, and uh, you know, on Saturday night their property is being used by some minority group that has a church plant. And on Sunday afternoon, there's a church in another denomination that's using the same space. And you see that sort of thing happen. And that's sharing like an extension of what you're talking about. Sharing resources. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about really merging into one congregation, but that is another thing that we can do is share resources. Even if we still have two churches in the denominational sense, they're coming out of the same place and working together to reach their community. And I'm thinking, just just I guess because how I grew up, even specifically like um, a non-charismatic and a charismatic service, like it would be. I, that's one thing I have noticed is uncomfortable. Someone who's not used to you know charismatic movements going into a charismatic service, it freaks them out. Which the Bible says it would, but that's you know whole different podcast. Or someone who's used to being in a charismatic service, then all of a sudden being in a place where they feel constrained almost makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, sure. Oh, it does. But I feel like if we had services in the same building, you're a lot more likely to intermingle than, okay, well, this is something we need to be in different buildings for, and then we just never see each other, and, uh, oh, them over there, they speak in tongues, or, oh, them over there, they don't even, you know, like, if we're in the same building, at least you're intermingling, I feel like. So one of the things that I talk about in some of the classes I teach is what I call concentric circles of cooperation. And the closer, yeah, you like this? So, you know, imagine a group of circles that gets smaller and smaller. Um, Our reflex is to want to work with people who are very close to our circle, maybe even in our circle, even though we know that there are other believers who are in circles that get a little bit further away when it comes to commonality. I think our reflex should be, how many things can we do with these people? Even as we recognize there's only some things we're going to be comfortable doing with these people. It's retraining kind of what our gut instinct is. And yeah. our gut instinct is what can we do together than our gut instinct being, oh, those guys are different. So I get the whole, some some churches need to be shut down, some need to be merged. I'm on board. I like it. We've had someone on here who said, let's just do away with the church institution. <laughs> we don't yeah. agree with him, but... I mean, I don't. TJ might. Yeah, he, but, was, he was wrong. But go ahead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I can understand that mindset. The mindset of, okay, we're over church, so let's plant new churches. Why? <laughs> yeah, to reach people. Well, they already have churches. Yeah, but they're not reaching them. So because, see, some plant of the, effective churches shut plant down the ineffective tr- churches. And, and plant churches in places that are underreached. So what I don't think you should do is plant a church that you know, is with an eye shot of another church that's a lot like you in a competitive sort of way. But even in the over-churched South, there are neighborhoods and areas and demographics where no one's that's really horrible. reaching them. Are you suggesting so people plan a church near people who don't have a lot of money? Because that, that doesn't sound effective. Well, I mean, it depends on what your economy is, right? Is it a kingdom economy or is it a worldly economy? Yeah, but that that is the mindset, right? We usually plant churches Sometimes. where... Sure. Sometimes we make, make yeah. money. Sometimes, yeah. Hmm. So what's um? I like that. What's something if 
average Joe who just goes to church every Sunday? Is there something he can do to help us take that kind of path? I think that uh, most people in most of our churches have good friends who are in other churches. And I think if they take that same sort of relationship mentality and just ask the question, if I know my friend really loves Jesus and he's a good dude, but I go to this church and he goes to that church, but yet we find a, a real commonality, and, and part of that's a commonality in the Lord because we're both Christians who have this friendship, can we apply that on the church level as well and find common spaces where we can help each other to thrive, even if we're still going to worship in separate spaces because of convictions that are different about things? And I think that as ordinary Christians, if you will, wake up to the fact that they kind of live this out in their daily life and relationships much of the time. It's just that mentality kind of taking hold of the church and them being willing to say, you know what? We're going to find tangible ways to do this. So we're not going to merge with that church, but maybe we're going to have a new tradition where every single year we're going to swap pastors on a Sunday. Oh, fascinating. And, and we're going to let him come preach. He's going to preach over there. Or maybe we're going to have a Sunday. Like a good TV show. Or maybe we're going to have swapping preachers. Yeah. Or, maybe, or maybe we're going to have a Sunday where we worship together in one of our buildings. Maybe we rotate the two buildings. Maybe we uh, maybe we find a common space to go worship. Right now, we see this happen more often than not with uh, white folks and African Americans who are part of the same tradition, and they're trying to find tangible ways when race and history is all that really separates them. They're trying to find tangible ways to come together while still recognizing that their churches have unique identities. Well, we can do the same thing across denominational traditions if we're comfortable with you know, that person being in our pulpit. And sometimes we're not, but if we're comfortable with it, why not? That's, um, it's like in Charleston, just, I feel like maybe a month ago now, it's a few weeks ago, the church who they, they got shot Emmanuel. last year. Yeah. They had a lot of churches from white communities come in and they were did. worshiping together. They had exactly a big event. Right. That was, that was really cool. That's exactly I read, right. I read about that on Christianity See, Today. I think it was so if, cool. Uh, yeah. If we encourage a fellowship environment, like, hey, come over to the white church. We'll have an Eden greet. But some churches, so let's let's have real talk for a second, though. Oh, I love that. So one of the challenges with this, though, is that there are some traditions that have a tendency to be insular and think that they're the only game or the best game in town. There are other traditions who have a tendency to cooperate with anybody who calls themselves a Christian, even if they're heretics. So hmm. I won't talk about that latter group as much. I won't pick on them by name. You can look around and see traditions that do that. I'm going to pick on our traditions by name. Baptists and Charismatic and Pentecostals have a tendency to be super insular in different ways and think that they're the only game or the best game in town. And so our traditions have to be humble enough to say, we really think we're right, but we want to be humble enough about that that we're going to find ways to cooperate with the folks down the road who we think are right about the most important stuff, even if we have honest disagreements about some secondary and tertiary stuff. So you got that I am second ban on. So humility is kind of a big deal here, huh? Well, I mean, I, you know, we need more of it in the church. Amen. So just thinking like what you were saying, so the finding ways to fellowship across, would that be like Joe starting a Bible study with that friend? You know, doing something not just as friends do, but with their spiritual life that's cross nominations like that. 
That's one thing they could do. Um, I was kind of thinking a step higher with actual local churches finding way, not yeah. just individuals in the churches, but like the churches formally doing that. So it might be cooperating in some sort of mercy ministry. That's an easy first step, right? Yeah. We, we, we operate a clothing closet together. We do a health clinic together. Evangelizing is another step. You know what? We're going to go out together and we're going to share the gospel. We're going to have this event to try to connect the community. One thing that a lot of communities do, and this is an old tradition, but I think it very much plays to the sort of thing we're talking about, is having like a Thanksgiving Day community service where everybody comes to the same place. Uh, Maybe maybe you go to the high school football stadium uh, on a Sunday night and you rotate through which pastor from which church is preaching, but you've got folks from seven or eight different churches that are there at the football stadium, and there's there's 3,000 people there, and it's a Thanksgiving week service or whatever. You know, just finding different ways for churches to cooperate with each other. They're not always going to be able to plant a church together because they do have honest, honest differences of opinion, but they can model a unity in Christ even while having a difference of opinions for the watching world. And I think that that's a powerful testimony. All right. Just so, imagine like Rockfest, but with pastors. So, you know, like all the different tents. Yeah. yeah that's what I was thinking. Winter jam, but yeah. there are no bands. It's all pastors. From the <laughs> yeah, there we go. Let's do it. <laughs> One more question. All right. Oh, yeah. So, well, we actually just wanted to ask uh, what we'd see in the world if we put all those changes into effect. Like, How would we notice things are different? I think that we would notice fewer sub-denominations. What I mean by sub-denominations is different versions of the same tradition. Now, we're still going to have capital B Baptists and capital P Presbyterians and capital P Pentecostals, to give three examples, capital M Methodists. But there's all kinds of little Methodist groups that have disagreed with each other over personalities and politics, and they split off. They have way more in common than they do different. All kinds of different little Pentecostal subgroups. So they're just two different groups because they were started by two different people. The Baptists, we are rife with this. And so I think, number one, you're going to see within those broad denominational tents more folks coming together and recognizing that whatever happened in history doesn't keep have to keep them apart in the present and the future. Then I think you're going to see within those big denominational categories people bending over backwards to show Christian hospitality to each other and finding ways to work together, even knowing that they're probably not going to be a part of the same group until somebody changes their mind about something that's mm-hmm. important, even if it's not yeah. the most important thing. You know, I, I love the the hymn. Now, you guys are Pentecostals. You don't know what hymns are. Yeah, yeah, what's but I love the, you see what I did there? But I, I love, there's this old hymn that just says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And uh, and then one of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbigen, uh, he argues that uh, love is the ultimate hermeneutic, how you interpret the church. Francis Schaeffer, the apologist, says love is the greatest apology for the church. Apology in the commending sense, not the yeah. apologizing mm-hmm. sense. And so, uh, li- listen, love without truth is just murky, mushy stuff. But a truth-driven love and a love-driven truth it's the hope of the world. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, right? And so I think that they would see that love and they would recognize that there really is something different about Christianity. It doesn't mean that they're all going to become Christians, but I can't help but think that more of them would become Christians if we led with love. Unity is our greatest evangelical. 
evangel I can't use the word tool. <laughs> that the <laughs> You know world, what I'm trying to say. That the world may know. That's what Jesus says after yeah. he prays. Yeah. That they would be me. that they would be one as we are one in John 17. Yeah. That the world may know. So we just end by talking about a God moment of the week, just something that God's done for us this week or something that we've, you know, in our prayer time just experienced just to wrap it up. Yeah. Mine's really small. It happened on the way here. You know how you'll see a transfer truck, tractor trailer, whatever you want to call it, 18-wheeler. That's really dusty, and people will draw obscene things in the yes. dust. Yeah. Uh, today, we passed one, and I saw one, and it said, uh, Jesus is Lord. That's it. Yeah. It just said, Jesus is Lord on the uh, the side skirt. So, your God moment was a crime. My God moment was vandalism. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, uh, man, mine... It's one of those things that's like big to me that I feel like it's just going to sound dumb to everybody else, but my God moment was yesterday. I was doing the dishes at work and just thinking about some stuff I've been struggling with lately, some decisions I've made that I'm not too excited about. And I was just kind of like, oh man, why did I do that? And it was just kind of a comforting feeling of, you're going to get through this. You're going to make the right decision next time. I was like, all right. I just kind of feel that God was still there. It's good to feel him still there. That's great. My moment was I had about an hour and 45 minutes on Monday to visit with a Christ-centered multi-millionaire business leader in Greenville who is using his very successful, profitable business to change the lives of his employees and other people and just really models how to follow Jesus as a business person. And though I am not a business person, I walked away loving Jesus more because of spending time with him. And what's his contact info? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say that on the air. So, but yeah, it's a great business, though. Actually, I'll give a shout out to the business. It's Ubi, O-O-B-E. Uh, they are a clothing and apparel company, but they'll tell you that their business is not apparel. They are in the loving and serving business, and that apparel is their platform. All right, and this podcast was brought to you by... <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Dr. Finn, for giving us so much of your time. Yes. You bet. Fantastic insight. Um, you want to tell everybody how they can find uh, us? Yeah. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Follow yeah. us on Spotify, Apple Music. Whichever one you don't use, go follow us on that, too. Yeah, and then comment on Apple Podcasts, because that's the only way we really get comments. The more comments we have, the more other people can see us, which spreading the word is a big part of getting unity to happen. People don't know we want to be united. We're not likely to come together. So um, do that. Follow us on Patreon, because uh, we need hardware and stuff, and we're broke. Yeah. Um, Who's some future guests? Future guests? Uh, Dr. Nathan Finn is no longer a future guest. We uh, just Donald Whitney. Donald Whitney. Judy Knoll. Judy Knoll. And uh, Lance Skipper. Well, Chris just, Galloway. Yeah, Lance Skipper's going to be back. And Chris, yeah. Brother McLaughlin. Oh, yeah. And then, um, of course, at the end of this season. Francis Chan. He just doesn't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs>